It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. To search it out is the glory of kings. This is the Message to Kings podcast. Episode 234, Esther, Part 1. With Janelle's apologies, I'll be recording this episode. Homeschooling five kids has its challenges on timing of podcast outputs. So instead, you have me, but don't worry, I come with her notes. Upon the conclusion of the invasion of Greece, Xerxes returned to Susa, broken. Assassination plots afoot in his royal citadel, Such security measures were now in effect that Xerxes surrounds himself with bodyguards, and there's even an assassination plot within the book of Esther. Xerxes has great fear because many want his head. He was the richest and most powerful man in the world still, at least by quantity of treasure and armament. He also was the most wanted man on the planet. Thousands of children were now fatherless now after the Greek wars, and his reputation was horrible after losing his campaign in Greece. The fears are so strong that Xerxes posts two axe-wielding bodyguards to the right and left of his throne. Per Josephus, if anyone approached him without permission, these bodyguards were required by law to cut them in two. The only exception to this would be if he extended his royal scepter. Another thing we learn about Xerxes is that he's not the smartest man to ever live. He was violent, given his agreement later to kill off an entire people group, and his cowardice before his nobles, his lack of common sense, and he was full of fear after Salamis, and he was fearful of his own life as well. And after failing on campaign, he resigned to his citadel and and reigned conducting building projects, and Josephus said he had enormous harem looking like Solomon in the history books. And he was a bit of a sad character in history, having the twin fatal flaws of pride and arrogance. One could blame ignorance for many things, but instead pride couples onto it as a sinister multiplier. He's foolish, arrogant, and let's also add, very violent. And he's ruler of most of the known world. Cyrus, who is noted as an able, competent, anointed ruler, not perfect at all, but resourceful with the credible list of achievements. Darius, a capable military leader and administrator, expanded on these achievements. Xerxes, not so. A spectacular military failure, somewhat of a builder, ignorant and prideful with few achievements to speak of. Xerxes' ignorance and pride is, is the reason we have the story of Esther. Without his ignorance, there would be no Esther, no lot cast for the destruction of all the Jewish people. It took Esther to reveal to the foolish king his ignorance and flip the situation from destruction to absolute favor. The story begins with Xerxes uh, returning to Susa after the Greek wars. He throws an enormous banquet to impress everyone with his splendor, and this most likely happened just after his return. It states all of his military leaders were present, and there was excessive quantities of food and drink, and it's almost like he wanted everyone under one roof just to make sure there was no rebellion brewing amongst the military commanders after Salamis. He wanted everyone to get smashed, drunk, and forget about their pain. Esther 1.4 
For a full 180 days he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. And when these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions. For the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. So basically, there was a six-month party in Susa, followed by another party for everyone. A gigantic, drunken mess. Xerxes desired to drink away all the pain of his military campaigns. And I don't think it worked, but the excesses and splendor of the capital may have impressed the leaders, though. But no matter the drink, the hundreds of thousands that, we lo- that were lost in battle couldn't be forgotten. And it's no doubt the congregation of people actually encouraged some to plot assassination of the king. Death to the ignorant and prideful king, the foolish descendant of noble Cyrus. In addition, other things are going on, and I believe some of the cabinet that advises the king are holding him in contempt. They don't all plot assassination, but think ill of him and force him into corners out of sheer ability to apply fear to the foolish young king. And at the time of the six-month feast, or this after-feast, there was a ladies' feast run by the queen, Esther 1.9. Queen Vashti also held a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. And on the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. So now our history is sketchy here. Who exactly was Vashti, um, the the queen of this king here? Was it Herodotus' mentioned wife of Xerxes, whose name was Ametrius? If so, she was a vile woman who buried people alive to keep her youth. We really don't know for sure, though. Also, the scripture doesn't give the backstory, and we can try to build it out, but commentaries on Esther tend to speculate at best. The name Vashti means beautiful, which is interesting because um, what we'll learn later about Esther. Well, Xerxes is furious with his wife's denial of him, and varying accounts of the story have detail, but they many contradict each other. One Jewish traditional account is pretty interesting, has a debate among the Persians of who's the most beautiful woman in the world. Xerxes says Vashti is, and asks her to come and show herself naked to all the Persian nobles. Well, he was horribly drunk, it said. Well, she denies him, and in good reason. It was actually against the law for women to show up at this banquet as well. And Xerxes is extremely drunk. And let's remember, he's also really violent, and he's got mega anger issues. He gets furious, throws a fit, and this is what it says. Esther 1.13, since it was customary for the king to consult experts in law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king. The seven nobles of Persia and Media had special access to the king, and they were highest in the kingdom. According to the law, what must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. 
She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs had taken to her. Then Memacan replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but against all the nobles and the peoples of all the provinces of the king of Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will be known to all the women, and so that they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she wouldn't come. And this very day, the Persian and Median women and the nobility who had heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end of disrespect and disaccord. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. And also let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. And then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all the vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. The king and his nobles were pleased with this advice. So the king did as Mamakan proposed. He sent dispatches to all the parts of the kingdom, to each province in its own script, and to its own people in his own language, proclaiming that every man should be ruler of his own household using his native tongue. So the king, completely drunk, probably doesn't even remember what happened until the next day when his wife is basically ostracized from him. And there's a decree that cannot be repealed that separates him and his wife. And talk about a check and balance to this government. The king, whatever he says, cannot be repealed by law, even if he was drunk. And surely someone didn't think this law through very well. And that's the thing about a blackout, a, a, a kind of an alcoholic, drunken blackout that he was under. Um, they may appear cognizant, but they actually don't even know what they're doing. And there's like a um, when a person enters that state of uh, alcohol where it, the levels are too high for the, for the mind to kind of um, cope, it shuts off short-term or even long-term memory, and it's called a blackout. And the king potentially actually didn't even remember what happened in the morning. And, he re- and it says he regretted his decision. And we see the stage set for this new wife and our hero for the story. Esther 2. Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all the beautiful women in the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed in the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai. Now Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. And this young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. Now Hadassah, or later to be called Esther, enters our story. The riders went throughout the land and seized Hadassah. And we have to assume Mordecai was caught off guard and she was taken from him. Mordecai does give her one direction, though. And he somehow reaches out to her enough to communicate to her, but not enough to prevent her being taken into the king's palace. And he tells her one direction, hide your identity. Do not let them know you're a Jew. 
Now, being taken into the king's palace, into his harem, was a horrible thing. I mean, Mordecai must have freaked out. And becoming one of the king's concubines, or, you know, a best-case scenario, his wife, would have been a, uh, not a father's calling for his adopted daughter. I mean, being a father, I would never want my daughters to marry Xerxes. But, but once he realized there was nothing he could do, this is Mordecai, he must have reconciled it with God and made the best of the situation. And Adassa was taken to the king's palace and trusted to a eunuch named Haggai, who was in charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favor, and she starts to gain a reputation in the palace as a woman of honor. And Haggai soon assisted her with seven attendants. He kind of assigned her uh, seven attendants to attend to her, and then he gave her the best place in the harem. And after the women were assembled, Josephus says there was actually 400 virgins that were brought for this contest, quote-unquote contest, and they would be giving months of beauty treatment, six months with oil of myrrh, six months of perfumes and cosmetics. And during the year, Mordecai found a way to check in on, on Esther quite often. And after a year, the rotation began where the king would invite one woman at a time into his chambers, and she would return the next morning. See, it's Solomon all over again. And the king would announce who he chose if he called her back the next morning. Esther 2.13. And when the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihail, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the tenth month, the month of Tabath, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all of his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. Xerxes has a new queen, and he somehow doesn't realize she's Jewish. Their relationship would be noble and celebrated, but extremely strained. And remember David's wife, Abigail, who he took to be his wife after the death of Nabal, her husband? And it must have been similar, but much, much worse. I mean, Xerxes was like a Solomon. He had hundreds of concubines, and he will find Esther will even go months without seeing him. Her place was confined to the palace, but really just a harem. Her relationship with the king was quite limited. And after all, he never learned her true identity, and probably didn't even find time or care to even investigate or find out. I mean, what kind of a relationship is that? He didn't actually know her heritage. Now that Esther's queen, we start to see her influence. Mordecai finds out about a plot to kill the king, and there was a lot of those, actually. But two of the guards were plotting his assassination. Mordecai finds out. He tells the queen. She, in turn, tells the king, attributing the intel to Mordecai, and the king investigates the matter and impales the plotters and takes note of who saved him, that Mordecai was actually the one, um, it was his information that helped save his life. Now, some time has passed, and Mardonius is now dead after the Battle of Platae. A vacuum exists in Susa, and the man who fills it is, is named Haman. He's an Agagite, a long descendant of King Agag, if you remember the King Saul days. Somehow he had a descendant who rose to prominence in the court of Xerxes. 
So a descendant of an ancient enemy of the Jews is now ruling in the place, the old place of Daniel. And if anyone has a grudge, this guy has an eons old grudge to destroy the people of the Jews. Now the enemy of this book is a descendant of Agag. And it's Xerxes now who has like a second in command of the kingdom. Now that Mardonius dies, a new man is promoted. His name is Haman. And he becomes a man of honor in Babylon. And all the people honor Haman. But Mordecai refuses to bow or pay him honor, and it infuriates him. Haman wants to kill Mordecai for his insolence and devises a way to kill off all the Jews. And now we learn of the super ignorance of Xerxes again. Esther 3.3. 3. Then the royal officials of the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it, to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had been told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet, having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. And in the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, in the month of Nisan, were cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and a month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people group, dispersed among the peoples and all the provinces of your kingdom, who kept themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all the other people. They do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. And I will give you 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. So the king took his signet ring from his finger, gave it to Haman, son of Hamadath, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews, Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. Then on the thirteenth day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out a script of each province and each language of the people of all the Haman's orders to the king's satraps, governors of the various provinces, and the nobles of the various peoples. And they were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews young and old, women and children, on this single day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, the month of Adar, to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that they be ready for that day. The couriers went out and spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. So now our plot thickens. I mean, there is mobilization. I mean, and if you're kind of like me, and right now I'm like, you know, all of a sudden Nestor's queen. Um, things seem to be going pretty good. Mordecai is kind of a advisor to the king. Um, out of nowhere, this new guy comes and becomes the second in command, basically of the Persian Empire. And literally, it seems like out of nowhere, um, this decree is issued to annihilate um, and to commit a genocide uh, against all the Jews in the known world. Um, it's quite out of nowhere. Um, it's quite shocking. And then how on earth did um, this king in such a 
very almost stale persuasion by Haman um, agree to such a, a thing. And our plot thickens. And, and there's a mobilization to kill off the Jews. Haman wants to fund the campaign himself, and the king refuses. Soldiers are mobilized, and I imagine Haman has his own Gestapo. I mean, that was a lot of silver he offered. And they're trained to kill off um, all the Jews in Susa. An army of Israel's enemies mobilizes near Jerusalem. And, and that's what's going on. I mean, there, there are Jews all over Susa. There's Jews in Babylon. Um, but the vast majority of the Jews um, are now in Jerusalem, resettling Israel. Um, and that's what's, you know, Israel's enemies. And if you remember, you know, back when they were rebuilding the temple, I mean, there were enemies uh, that were going after them. Now they have money from the king himself, Xerxes, and a command to kill them. Um, they're thrilled in many ways. And it's not a Persian army, most likely, but it's led by Persian officers or Haman's men and consisting of those who opposed the building of the temple earlier. These men are from Ammon, Edom, and Moab, and they're mobilized near the border. Everyone who was a nominal enemy before would later become an open enemy when money was offered for them to kill off the country of Israel. And greed may have played a part of it, for many just wanted the land of Israel. The lot and day is around is in February. It's it's lunar calendar, so it kind of changes by year on what day of the month it is. The fact that Xerxes knew nothing of the people and didn't know anything about Daniel or how he was about to destroy a people, he just assisted with their temple, tells you just how ignorant he was. Um, he was potentially very drunk again. And I mean, I honestly hope so, because it would make me feel a little bit better about him, because he agrees to genocide so casually, and he sits to drink while the whole city is bewildered. And God's response to this demonic plot was already in the wings. I mean, think about it. Before the plot came about, God already had Mordecai and Esther in place to be his instruments of deliverance for such a time as this. What a master storyteller God is. Esther 4. And when Mordecai learned that all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the city's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. And when Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hapnak, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hapnak sent out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay in the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain to her, and he told her and instructed her in the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her, their people. Hathnek went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then he instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned the king has by one law that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. 
But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back his answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. And that's the famous line of the book. The one-liners in the Bible are just shattering for such a time as this. A preacher could run with this verse and read a hundred sermons, and it speaks to you and me and our callings. Esther's arrived at her moment in history, the reason God put her in the palace. The reason was to approach the throne and beseech the king, to approach the inner court to intercede for her people. For such a time as this is, is that divine place when our callings and gifts and purposes and divine appointments intersect, where we see the greatest revelation of our purpose on this planet. Esther was the person positioned to make the greatest difference in the world at this one moment in time. A humble servant, a woman, an orphan, intersected with divine purpose and destiny. Now we see another fast in the Bible, the Esther fast. Three days with no substance, but on the third day, a near-death or God experience due to no food or water for three days. Esther 4.15 then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. Listen to the boldness that she expressed in her faith. If I perish, I perish. If I die, I die. Like a warrior going into battle, if I die, I die. May I find glory as I beseech the king, facing breakthrough and success or death all the same. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Esther prepares herself for the greatest moment of her life. Next week, we conclude the story of Esther. As always, thanks for joining us for this episode of Message to Kings. Feel free to visit the website, messagetokings.com. Share the Facebook page, or if you want to chat, email us at messagetokings at gmail.com.